Hello, and welcome to this FRDH, First Rough Draft of History podcast. I'm Michael Goldfarb. There are a lot of reasons to distrust and dislike Facebook, but every once in a while you see a post, a piece of original writing, or hear of a quest someone is on that gets your attention. The steel tycoon Andrew Carnegie awarded Peru, Indiana, a substantial grant of $25,000 to build its first public library, and the building opened in May 1903 to much fanfare. The architect had insisted on locally quarried Indiana limestone and said to be the best in the country. It's used in Yankee Stadium, the National Cathedral, Rockefeller Center, the Lincoln Memorial. The stone, I tell you, if the light is right, it seems to glow from the inside. That's Mark McDonald, reading about the library, funded by Gilded Age industrialist Andrew Carnegie in Peru, Indiana. Mark, a former foreign correspondent of the New York Times, we've covered some of the same wars, has been exploring the communities where Carnegie built libraries and blogging about what he finds on Facebook. I got in touch with him recently to ask how the library odyssey began, and our conversation meandered into other topics as well. I was pretty much done with daily journalism. I had lived the last 25 years of my career overseas. And then when I started to try to retire, I started teaching university back here in the States, but I arrived back to a country I really didn't much recognize. And I've always been a bit of a history nut. So driving back and forth between uh, Michigan, where I was teaching in my home in New Mexico, I tried to figure out a way to break up the trip a little bit and started thinking that, well, there were Carnegie libraries all through the Midwest, and I started stopping at them as I went along. It was just a convenient sort of road tripping technique that developed into this nerdy hobby that I have now. Well, you know, it's an interesting nerdy hobby. I mean, I I can imagine in, in this online age where you've got TripAdvisor and a thousand and one websites telling you, you know, who's got the best diner and, and the best waffles and pancakes, or you could break up the trip simply by saying, oh, I'm going to try here and, and have something delicious because it's 10 miles off the interstate and it's only 20 minutes out of my way. But why Andrew Carnegie? It was serendipity, really. It, I was teaching at the University of Michigan, and my first office was in an old Carnegie library that the university had bought and turned into offices and, and classrooms. And it just sort of struck me. It sort of came to me. A very dear friend of mine here in Michigan is a big-time industrial farmer, and in his little farm town, they have a Carnegie library. And so I went to that one, too. And then it sort of all just kind of came together. And then, you know, researching into Carnegie himself and his library program, it, it was just sort of a nice, nice project that I took on and sort of has become something more than a project now. Did you know much about Andrew Carnegie beforehand? There wasn't some kind of, well, we're in the second Gilded Age and, you know, look at Andrew Carnegie gave away a ton of money to build libraries, and Jeff Bezos and Elon Musk are spending on space exploration. Who's doing the most with their Gilded Age ill-gotten gains? It wasn't anything like that. It wasn't, but but as you as you point out, there are st 
startling, striking uh, parallels between the Carnegie era, which <clears throat> his pro his library program was basically 1900 to 1920. He died in 1919, and at some point he had an epiphany that he should give away the bulk of his money, that there was no need for any person, any one person or one family, to have this incredible wealth that, that he and other robber barons of his era had. You know, I've read a lot about him now, and there's no, there's no like moment, no come to Jesus, you know, wake up in the middle of the night sweating kind of moment where he decided on this philosophy for the rest of his life. He, he wrote quite a bit about it and wrote a book called The Gospel of Wealth, where he exhorted other robber barons to give away their money, too. Why did he choose libraries as, as a, a focus for his giving? He did, he did have lots of different programs. He developed think tanks, and he gave away pipe organs to churches, hundreds of them. And lots of uh, uh, Carnegie Mellon University. Uh, he, he was nuts about dinosaurs, so he, he founded a natural history museum. But when he was a kid, he worked in a textile factory, uh, sorry, a steel mill. And on the weekends, he would be allowed to go to, he and other working kids would be allowed to go to a local man's personal library. Back then, there were only mostly personal libraries. And a wealthy local guy in Allegheny, Pennsylvania, where Carnegie was, invited some kids on Saturdays to come in and take out a book. And this is how I, Carnegie really developed this bootstrapping philosophy that he spent the rest of his life endorsing. And he, he felt very obligated to sort of pay it forward, I think. I, I'm making him out to be some sort of a saint. He certainly wasn't. He treated his workers badly and he busted unions and he wasn't angelic by any means. But, but those early days when he was a kid, a teenager, uh, taking books out of this man's library really got to him. And I, I think he saw that he could, he could help people in new towns quite effectively and efficiently by giving them money to build libraries. And almost every town, these were, especially in the Midwest and the West, these were new towns around 1900, places that were just coming into existence. I sort of know the area. I mean, I haven't driven in the middle of the country for, for a long time because I've been living in London since 1985. I used to drive around a lot when I was a kid and when gas was 35 cents a gallon, which is how old I am. So I have, I have an, a sense of the area you're talking about. But what was the first and why did you choose it? My first trip I started, as I said, in my friend's little farm town. And it took a bit of research to plot the trips. And I've made four or five trips now. And I try to obviously go a different way every time. There are hundreds and hundreds of these libraries all through the Midwest, and also in the East and the South and in the West. But the, the bulk of them are in the Midwest. Before he was finished with this program, he had built 2,500 public libraries, which at the time was half the total number of libraries in the United States. 
I mean, it's just, it's mind-boggling. Uh, he built them in small towns. He built them in big cities, St. Louis, Detroit. They're everywhere. I didn't really have one that I necessarily wanted to go to. The first one he built was in a little town called Fairfield, Iowa in 1892. So I'd always wanted to see that one. Where is Fairfield, Iowa? Uh, it's in the middle of Iowa. It's uh, a town that I'd never heard of, but it's like many, many, many most of, of these towns that I've been to. And I've, I've been to about 100 of the Carnegies so far. It, it had something to recommend it. Every little town you go to, there's somebody or something or some bit of history. And in Fairfield, it's where the Maharishi Mahesh Yogi visited and started a university. And, and now half the people in town are meditators and they pretty much not run the town, but have a, have a major presence in the town. I mean, this is true, Michael, I can tell you in every little town, there's something cool. There's something interesting. Now, maybe I'm just a, a history nerd and I love this stuff, but. No, no. I mean, one, one of the reasons that I, I, I just, you know, I kind of wait for your latest essay from wherever you stopped is your ability to narrate the history of a town from the what it was like when they, I mean, they often contacted Carnegie and said, would you give us one, rather than him kind of saying, oh, I see a town there and I'm going to send money to the town fathers. But what, you're, what makes them so good is that you find the continuity, say, from 1900 or 1905 through to the present day. Can you re recall how you described Fairfield to get to the Maharishi people who are running the place now? Yeah, it, it, it's sort of a nondescript town. It's perfectly lovely. And, and understand, I come into these towns and I make my quick and easy judgments and, and I move along. So I, I don't pretend to actually explore and get into the deep psychological makeup of these towns. But um, there's a lot of obvious history just just there. Uh, there's a little town in Iowa, Winterset, Iowa. I had no, I'd never heard of it before. It was John Wayne's hometown. And the place is just loaded with Wayne tourists. They come to see his house. And quite accidentally, I did a little research into the town. And there was a guy named George Stout who was there. He had gone to the original Carnegie Library and studied the art books inside, and he became one of the monuments men that rescued the, the artwork that the Nazis had stolen in Europe during World War II. And this guy, George Stout, was played in the movie by George Clooney. So there's always some little nugget of history that is there, and, and it doesn't take a whole lot of digging to find these things. The town of Winterset, famous for two movie stars. John Wayne and George Clooney. <laughs> yeah, right. Right. It's it's funny, you know, because a lot of a lot of your, your stuff is based in Iowa, and I was thinking, if you build it, they will come. But in this case, it's a library. Yeah, it is. <laughs> it is very much that way. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And 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 one other thing about Winterset, I. Uh, I went to the, the library there, and it's now, it now serves as sort of um, semi-city hall type building. And right across the street is a guy who sells 
old vintage stuff, you know, uh, cast iron grills and oscillating table fans and that kind of crap. And he had gone to the library when he was a kid, he was a local guy, and he remembered the smell of it and he tried to describe the smell of the library to me. So there's a lot of local history and uh, that, that sort of sensual stuff that, I don't know, it just, it really gets me. I really, I really like it. I guess it's all part of the DNA that you and I share of being a reporter, you know. Let's just talk about that DNA. We're both rusticated. We both covered the wars of the early part of this century. And I wonder, as you're driving through what is still some of the most extensive bucolic landscape you can go through, if you ever spend time thinking about Afghanistan and Iraq. Um, I do. I'm, I'm a little bit discouraged by the political persuasions of a good bit of the Midwesterners I come across. That's a terrible generalization, but I'm struck by how how people really haven't seen the wider world and uh, our, our effect, the Americans' effect in the wider world. And I'm happy to be home and I'm happy to feel like an American and a patriot and loyal. I, I don't even know what loyal means anymore, but I, I really feel a profound sense of being American and a certain pride in that. Um, and I, I, I tell you, these, these trips have really enforced that. I realize that a lot of people call the big fat waste of the country, you know, the, the center of the country as flyover country or the middle of nowhere. But it's not, it, it's not nowhere. I mean, nothing is nowhere. I mean, Gertrude Stein, you know, there's no there there. But there is a there there. I mean, people are living their lives and they're doing the best they can. And seeing this stuff up close has really been gratifying to me. I'm sort of rambling about this, but, but I'm, I'm really struck about how proud I am to kind of being an, be an American in spite of the horror that we've inflicted on way too many people. I mean, aside from Winterset, is there a, another library or town that you know, has, has the kind of story in it that you feel like telling? Yeah, they, as I said, they all, they all have something, and some are, some are heartening, and some are very discouraging. Um, Danville, Illinois, again, I'd never heard of it or knew anything about it, but one of the first kids to die of fentanyl poisoning in the Midwest, in the United States, was from this little town, and his parents had sort of gone on a, a mission, a campaign, a crusade to alert people to the dangers of fentanyl. I mean, you see the dark sides of these little towns quite easily, too. Fulton, Missouri is heartland, I guess, as it can be, and it used to be part of what was called Little Dixie and was one of the most uh, racist, confederate, awful places in the country. And uh, a woman named Helen Stevens was from Fulton, Missouri, and she was a sprinter on the U.S. track team in 1936. And they called her the Fulton Flash. And she, at the 36 games, she was introduced to Adolf Hitler at a reception. And he groped her and hit on her. And she uh, tells this story about rejecting the, the Fuhrer and his advances. And uh, like I say, every, every little town has 
something or someone. And it is, it is really gratifying to see these little towns sort of, a lot of them just hanging on, quite frankly. But the quality of the life and the quality of the people in these little towns has been really encouraging to me. I, I, I could read you one little one that I did. Go ahead. Um, this is Peru, Indiana. Again, no idea about Peru, hadn't been there, didn't know anything about it. The steel tycoon Andrew Carnegie awarded Peru, Indiana, a substantial grant of $25,000 to build its first public library, and the building opened in May 1903 to much fanfare. The architect had insisted on locally quarried Indiana limestone, also known as Bedford stone, and said to be the best in the country. It's used in Yankee Stadium, the National Cathedral, Rockefeller Center, the Lincoln Memorial. The stone, I tell you, if the light is right, it seems to glow from the inside. But the glow in Peru has begun to fade. Despite a flashy French cathedral entrance and big displays of stained glass, the proud old library looks almost shabby now. On a recent sweltering afternoon, it was closed because the AC was on the fritz. Cole Porter was 11 years old when the Carnegie opened, and it was just two blocks from his family's mansion on Huntington Street. Cole spent long hours studying at the Carnegie. He was a precocious kid, and his stage mother also insisted on lessons in piano, violin, and elocution. When Cole was shipped off to an elite boarding school in Massachusetts at age 14, he took an upright piano with him. After that came Yale, then Harvard Law, then music studies, and a sensational career as a songwriter and composer. Somewhere in there, he claimed to have joined the French Foreign Legion. Porter almost never came back to Peru. He married a rich Kentucky divorcee in 19, 19. She knew full well that he was gay, and they kept a deluxe apartment in Paris and a suite of rooms at the Waldorf in New York. In 1937, he had a riding accident that crushed his legs, and he would suffer through three dozen operations before his right leg was amputated in 59. He lived a lavish, bold-faced life and wrote some of the swingingest tunes in the American songbook. Died of kidney failure in 64, buried here in Peru. The Porter family mansion fell into disrepair. At one point, it was a meth lab. A couple of local hog farmers rescued the place. It's now the Cole Porter Inn, and you can book the night and day suite for 100 bucks. That's great. So here's the question. You're writing these things. How many have you written so far? I've written about 75. You've written 75 of these wonderful snapshots of small-town Midwest Americana. Every time I read one, I mean, that one always reminds me of the Magnificent Ambersons. <laughs> you know, and, and, and you think, okay, so why Facebook? I mean, I'm happy that the algorithm introduced me to your stuff. In fact, I, I think it was a share from a mutual friend. And I read it, and I thought it was great, and I friended you up, and, you know, it turned out we knew each other. Why Facebook? And will you turn these into a book? I'm not sure about a, about a book. I wrote a book like you about my war experiences, uh, I'm I'm not sure that I have another book in me. I, it, the first one took a lot out of me. Um, in a strange meta way, uh, I don't I don't really mind doing them. 
I like the doing of them, and I don't mind just you know tossing them down the Facebook well. I mean, I've I've had very gratifying reception to the pieces, and and that's that's almost enough at this point. I don't know. I, I'd never say never. I have had a little interest from a publisher, but yeah, we'll see. I, don't, I mean, Michael, you know how it is to do a book. You've got to really, really want to do it. And giving a, giving away a year of your life to a book, I, I don't know. We'll see. Yes, of course. But as you've done a lot of re the research already, I don't know. Your sensibility is is attuned to the times and, and your sense of curiosity, the way, the way it worked. I'm going to visit these small towns where Andrew Carnegie gave 5,000, 20,000, in the case of Detroit, a lot more, and it's a bigger building, to build these libraries. You know, it, it's, I don't know, I think you've done the, quite a bit of the work. Anyway, I, I'm just very grateful to you because they are the most pleasurable postcards I get to read. Oh, that's that's very kind of you. That's that's nice of you to say, especially from someone with your credentials and accomplishments. So I I, I just like doing them, and and we'll see. I, I you know I maybe am more inclined than when I started to do a book, if only because the reception to the history parts of these things seem to be registering with people. And uh, I mean, I, I just I didn't learn this stuff in. U.S. history. I, I just never, ever learned any of this stuff. And I've been really kind of careful to, or, or attenuated to, you know, what what were the Indians do, doing when all the settlers arrived and what happened to them and what happened to the African-Americans and, you know, women's clubs in these little towns. They're the ones who started the libraries. You know, Carnegie just paid for the buildings. So there's a lot of this un unspoken, unwritten, unrecognized history laying around. I, I think it, it may be important. That's the thing. I'd, I'd want it to be like, you know, like you. You want your stuff to be important. And if I get the sense that maybe it's important to enough people, I'll, I'll maybe take a shot at it. Mark, thank you very much. Uh, my pleasure, Michael. Thanks for, thanks for reaching out. It's nice to be back in touch with you. And that's all for this FRDH podcast. Thanks again to Mark McDonald for making time to speak with me and for his project. Now, look, I know a lot of you who listen to FRDH won't touch Facebook with a barge bowl and don't want to make Mark Zuckerberg richer than he already is. But Mark McDonald's pieces are worth making an exception for. And as for Zuckerberg and money, why not make a donation to the FRDH podcast? I don't need as much money as Zuck, but... Donations do allow me to keep the podcast going and put it out more frequently. Visit the website, www.goldfarpod.com, and click on the Donate button. Thanks.